0: It's a god of small
1: affair to the girl with her mousy hair, and her mother is yelling low, no. and her father has told her to go, but her friend is nowhere to be seen as she walks through her sunken dream to the sea. hooked to the silver screen
0: Bowie. Life on Mars. Recorded 23rd of March 1976. I'm Stephen Coates. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. Recorded 8th of October 2021. I don't know about you, but I mean it's very difficult, I think, to really believe that David Bowie is dead. You know, a countercultural hero of mine anyway. He had so many personas that he he killed off. That it's like that Bob Dylan song, Joey, he ain't dead, he's just asleep. It's almost like he's out there somewhere circling the planet like Major Tom. Anyway, the reason that I played Life on Mars, that version of Life on Mars at the beginning, was because that was from an illegal bootleg recording. And the subject of this week's episode is that countercultural artefact, the bootleg vinyl record. And this is a show that we recorded at Soho Radio in the pre-Bureau of Lost Culture days. One of five we made around the theme of our X-Ray audio project a project dedicated to bootleg records, but bootleg records made in the Soviet Union of forbidden music and cut onto X-ray film. The Bureau of Lost Culture is dedicated to digging up lost and half-remembered stories, so I thought we might dig up one of our own and give it a new airing, particularly because in the next episode we're going to feature the subject of the illicit use of musical recordings to make new tracks Via sampling. And we've got two very special sampling guests to guide us through that wonderful subject. But the booglegging onto vinyl record was a phenomena that emerged in the heady days of the 60s, lasted right through to the 90s. You could call it a countercultural entrepreneurial activity that, given the existence of the internet, has been rendered almost completely obsolete. So let's travel back through time to 2018. When this programme first aired. I'm sitting here with my friend and partner in crime, the photographer
1: Paul Hartfield. And
0: Stephen. And our old friend, uh, vinyl nut and cultural commentator, Travis Elbera, author of the book The Long Player Goodbye. great book, a sort of pay-on to the vinyl record. A little bit premature with the title, uh, <laughs> Travis, as I'm sure many people have reminded you.
2: Perhaps you'd have had a question mark.
0: That would yeah. have been a good idea. It's a great book still, though, actually, isn't it? Because it's, really, it's a love letter to Vinyl, yeah, isn't it, actually? It charts, yeah it
2: charts the history of the creation of Vinyl and, mm. and the LP and the album.
0: Right, and of course Vinyl didn't die, but I think you can probably say that one thing which is now... Dead, pretty much, is the bootleg record. But I wanted to say something, because yesterday, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we were in here talking about the FlexiDisc, and Will, young Will, so her radio engineer, came into the studio, and he he picked up one of our collection of FlexiDiscs, and he said, what's this? Of course, we just assumed that, of course, people would know what a FlexiDisc was, but maybe for some of the younger audience, uh, Travis, you could explain what is a bootleg record.
2: Well a bootleg record is a record that um, is often an illicit record- I mean well, maybe you should unpick this a bit. I mean there are, there's essentially there's the bootleg, and but according to the BPI, um all bootlegs are essentially pirated material. They are you know illegal or unauthorized recordings that are released not by the official art, by the artists themselves or by the record company, but they're released by possibly fans or people on the make. Um, aggrieved former lovers, um, you, know, dis, dis, you know, disbarred former band members, you know, whoever was, was particularly interested in putting these records out. But I mean, the word bootleg comes from the idea comes from sort of you know, brewing, you know, illegal liquor. Um, so the idea was that you'd put, uh, you know, a, a still of, of of corrupted whiskey in your boot as a way of disguising it. Um, and the bootleg record. I mean, there. I suppose the, the thing is, there are lots of different forms of of the bootleg. There's there might be the recording of a live performance which hasn't been released officially and might have been done either off the, off the, off the sound desk or it might have done, been done covertly um, you know, with a, a tape machine hidden in a bag or a jacket or a microphone stored away. Then there are releases of what might be session work where say you know an artist goes into studio records certain tracks doesn't use all of them um, and doesn't release all of them so these are kind of liberated for the fans and put out into the world on on a bootleg copy and then there are lots of i mean a big source of bootlegs in i suppose in the rock and roll heyday of the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s were fm radio broadcasts mm. lots of artists would record sessions like you know obviously famously the john peel sessions um but also live concerts would be recorded in america fm radio was a huge thing and you know many artists recorded you know hour long live sets which were then broadcast on radios and which people then taped um and then would issue them on record because you would never hear them again otherwise.
0: Right and I mean we're going to really concentrate for the next hour or so on the bootleg on the record for sure there's lots of other stuff too. And in and in the context of the X-ray audio project the soviet uh, bootleggers I don't think they called themselves that at the time music lovers I think they probably called themselves um they were actually on could only fit 3 minutes on a record mm. of course and they were they were really what we would in some ways called pirates, and you, you brought it up then because we are in the area of piracy. And as far as the, as you said, the labels are kind of, the major labels and the BPI, it's all piracy. But I've got, for you and Paul, I've got a, a little list of questions, and I'm going to ask you whether this is, these are good or bad pirates, whether they are allowed or not. You see, because at one night, the way I see it is that you've got a pirate flag waving over the top, right? And on the, on the left-hand side, imagine a dollar or a pound sign, it's just being done for the money and on the right hand side you've got a pulsating heart it's being done for love okay and all this stuff I think is somewhere along this scale it's a sort of gray area right but um, let me give you this right so what about a, a complete counterfeit it's the just a version of an artist's album vinyl or CD but made illegally in a dodgy pressing plant and sold you're
2: already loading this, Stephen, with the yeah, word I "in a dodgy pressing plant." It's like a, it's not a nice pressing plant; it's a dodgy pressing plant.
1: It's it, made in a point. sold, <laughs> and it's being <laughs> sold cheaper. Is that is that that's that just, is highly illegal? We know it's illegal, but is it right or wrong? I would go with the wrong. But then we were saying earlier we got a Russian pressing here of a Pink Floyd. They probably can't get it, so. There's another argument. There's plenty of sides to each. Other. Well, one of
0: one of my stories about Russia is that when when I went there in sort of to play with the Real Tuesday World in about 2007 or something, um, <clears throat> they took me. Our host took me to the flea market, uh, as they did with all the British people are over there, or Americans, and proudly took me to this store where there's a gigantic store where they had just knockoffs of all the, every Western album you could imagine. Quite nicely done. The printing was a bit odd, and if it had been a digipack, they'd put it in a, in, in a, in a jewel case. Uh, and they even had a Real Tuesday Weld album in there because I'd actually had a track in an Orange Juice ad uh, a few months previously. I was rather warmed to see uh, my own album there, <laughs> but rather saddened to see that they hadn't sold very many of them.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, but, I mean, that's a, that's a knock-off, isn't it? So that, Or a counterfeit, we could say. Now, what about the illegal download? So the uh, ra- new Radio albums, Head album's coming out. It's it's leaked and somebody puts it up uh, ahead of time just for anybody to download for free. Is that, Travis? Is that right or wrong?
2: Uh, I mean, again, it's really about intention, isn't it? If the artist didn't want it released at that point and wanted you to pay for it, then as far as the artist and the record company is concerned, then that's a, you know a bad thing to do. But obviously, for the fans expecting the new release and very keen to hear it. Then that becomes it. That becomes the fans' justification, and lots of bootleggers, in a way, justify their actions under the grounds so that they are um, just keen, you know, and want right. to hear this stuff.
0: Well, what about after the album's out officially, and somebody just sticks it up on a torrent site or something to download for free? Is that okay?
2: I would probably say no. I mean, I mean it's Radiohead they really they don't need the money, do they? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I mean, well, that's, okay. the thing about the thing, the, I think there's a, there's an interesting argument as well this as well with some a band like Radiohead who obviously then released mm. their own album in in a in a sort of quasi um bootleggy way or just making it available to free and then pay as you want and then p- people still bought the physical object when it came out later anyway right. but you have to be an act of a particular stature for that to really pay That's off a, yeah um
0: i well, guess i'm gonna, I'm gonna let yeah. me give you some easier ones okay i think I, I i think <laughs> these are on the sort of on maybe on the light side when it comes in star wars terms so what about the concert Recording the demo the early demo before the artist made it or the outtake from studio sessions or or a radio session as you said Is that okay to put that out?
1: I think it's a good thing as a Beach Boys fan you can get Hours and hours in fact days of outtakes. Uh, Mm -hmm. I love that stuff. I love it It tells you how it was recorded you can Mm -hmm. hear layers you can hear it without bass You can hear it without cello Mm -hmm. you can hear it separate vocal takes if I say God only knows We've heard that we're done still a beautiful song you hear another version of it without a line, it becomes new again. Right, so I love it. So, so it, we're it, it in one territory, to me. right? And we're, I've paid for those. Right. You know, I have got, should I say? Yes, I've got a fair, <laughs> a fair box of um, probably illicit recordings, but they've since been released on different box sets. So I've bought those as well. So okay, I'm going to I send mean, the, the beach, BPI
0: your uh, your address, <laughs> I mean, and the they're going to come. The Beach
2: Boys a... are an interesting case as
1: far as fan worship
2: as well. It's obviously mm. the famously the album Smile didn't appear um and so therefore many there were many bootleggers who made their own versions of of smile putting together the tracks and the studio sessions as they had um and so you could hear the album which hadn't been available and and so that was a means. so it was it was fulfilling a gap within the market yeah i'm going to
0: come back to this subject and more testing questions ethical questions for you two in a second but because I want to hear some music. Um, And Travis, actually, you mentioned it earlier that the heyday of the bootleg for sure was the late 60s, 70s, 80s. But in fact, and people often think it began there, but I forget about the Soviet people who were in sort of 40s and 50s. It went back much earlier, didn't it? And your first selection, in fact, is a bootleg on a wax cylinder. Let's have a quick listen. (laughs) was Joanna Gadsden in 1902. No, Travis, why that's on a wax cylinder? That's amazing. Why is that a bootleg?
2: Well, I mean, it's, I suppose it's a thin line, but it, it, the person who recorded that was a man called Lionel Mapleson, who was the librarian at the New York uh, Metropolitan Opera. And he was actually given a wax cylinder machine by Edison himself. And he, uh, I mean, Edison obviously originally thought that, that cylinders were used for, you know, dictation. But uh, Lionel decided quite quickly that he was going to use this machine to record segments from the opera performances as they, as they were on. And, and this was obviously quite a cumbersome thing to do, to wheel this thing out and have it by the side of the stage. And obviously the cylinders themselves only last for a couple of minutes. Um, so he 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 he, he collected a, you know a series of snippet recordings. I mean, some of them are hilariously bad, but then for sociological reasons, they become immensely fascinating because you can hear you know people moving scenery around in a few of them and you know and these other little ephemeral details. So I mean, he didn't really make them commercially available. So he's he's not really a bootlegger, but the recordings were were done sort of illicitly. It wasn't right. it wasn't wasn't really sanctioned that he should be recording them. And again, this legal matter. I mean, the, in as far as terms of copyright at that. point, point um the thing that was copyrighted was sheet music mm. um, and the live performance you obviously paid to hear um but obviously with the coming of of phonographs and then records um they then have to kind of extend the copyright onto the recording. And in America, there's a strange anomaly within the copyright law that records themselves weren't copyrighted technically.
0: Right. Well, copyright law is incredibly complicated anyway. And when it comes to music, it's super complicated, yeah. isn't it? And then, of course, you've got the federal versus, uh, you know, uh, national yeah. thing in, in the US. But we'll come back to the live recording mm. thing, because that's a big part of bootlegging, yeah. of course, was Ill- illicit live recordings. I am just want to do a bit more music, so let's just skip forward to another one of your choices, and this is Judy Garland, and again, it's this bootleg didn't start at all in the 60s, and in fact, um, I think Variety were the first people to use the word bootleg with mm. regard to, to records rather than booze.
2: Yes, I mean, this is another element about albums, a big thing in albums uh, in the first period are show tunes and also soundtracks, but the thing about soundtracks often were that they wouldn't necessarily be the exact soundtrack because there might be issues about rights of getting particular singers where they, were, they could sing on, this, on the soundtrack but they, could, they were under contract by a different record company so they couldn't be on the soundtrack album so often you'd have uh, a kind of co- cobbled together soundtrack or the soundtrack would be recorded separately this is an interesting case because this is Annie Get Your Gun where Judy Garland was originally t- um, to star in the film, but had a breakdown and so didn't appear in the film and was replaced in the film. So the so the uh, this is a soundtrack album of in a way of a film that never existed because it's a piece together soundtrack of Judy Garland singing the numbers from Annie Get Your Gun, which was never seen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Folks are dumb where I come from; they ain't had any learning. Still they're happy as can be, doing what comes naturally. Doing what comes naturally. Folks like us could never fuss with schools and books and learning. Still we've gone from A to Z
1: doing. That's
0: excellent, and of course, would have been much appreciated by the legions of, uh, of her fans. Friends right? of Dorothy. Friends of Dorothy, Dorothy exactly. I'm pleased to receive that. Um, so, and, and I think uh, whether the film company or the record label objected to that, I mean, it's difficult to see that as a sort of act of violation, isn't it, of any, anything really. And, and I guess I remember uh, when I used to live in Notting Hill, I used to go down Portobello Market, and um, if you walked along the West Way, there was a guy, and he was always playing a tambourine. And he had these sort of cds of of like rare sort of philly soul and whether or not it was available he just had a great record collection and they're probably on 45s and he put together cds from it and it felt like a sort of curated in some mm. way there was a sort of creative input into it you know so I I don't. Does that sound right to you, Paul? To people to do
1: that and tell them. It sounds good to me. I I think we've all been guilty of that at some point. It's the same as uh, just giving a tape to your mates, isn't it? Really. Yeah. It's, well, it's but I've like found this. I've discovered this is amazing. You are sharing.
0: Right, yeah. but BPI, of course, in the old days used to say that home taping was killing music, <laughs> uh, with the big uh, pirate sign it it stamped yeah, on yeah. it, wasn't it? You know yeah. you, that you were harming the artists in some way. Um, that's pretty unlikely, isn't it? That uh, you're harming the artist, Travis.
2: Well I mean they would probably argue uh that you're putting out well there, there are a couple of arguments on there one is that the, the the sound quality of the release that may may not be as good as the as as the official releases um, let's come back to
0: that one in a minute That's a good um one.
2: it that they would argue in a sense that because the artist themselves hasn't licensed it hasn't agreed mm. to it then then it's uh it, essentially you know, the artists exist to um as a, as a performer with their own career where they may have their own sort of narrative about what they want their their music to you know to build on and, and so on and so the release of this is embarrassing i mean you have classic non bootleg things where you know David Bowie is famously you know deeply embarrassed when his when his old record label released the Laughing gnome at the height of his kind of you know Ziggy Stardust pomp is that right um, was that
0: right of them to do
2: that I think so because it's a fantastic record oh, <laughs> good so <laughs> but, you know, I, yeah. speaking
0: of david Bowie so that, that first, uh, see, that's interesting because the very first thing that we played, which was "Life on Mars," mm. uh, which was, you know, a brilliant recording, and I mean, he sounded on top of his game, didn't he? It's it's, it's live at the Cold Coliseum, and I say it's absolutely amazing record. And of course, it was officially released, uh, you know, later, later in 2010 yeah. or something, yeah. a long time later. And so, there's a whole thing, isn't it? Would it have been officially released if the bootleg hadn't come out? You know, with all these all these mm. outtakes that you know, Beatles anthologies and Dylan anthologies yeah. and stuff. Would they have been released, in fact, if there hadn't been bootleg Well, there's, bootleg there, I, there's releases.
2: almost, you could see it in official releases as well, like, say something like The Who's live at Leeds. Mm. The design of that cover is purposely made to look like a bootleg. It piggybacks on that, and throughout the 70s, there's a huge market in live albums, which in arguably only really exist, I suspect, to stop the bootleggers. Or to, out, or or to uh, cash, in or the... cash in on the bootleg. So it's a, so it's a very interestingly semiotic, sorry, symbiotic, um, kind of relationship. I mean, the Rolling Stones famously there's uh, Liver Than You'll Ever Be," um, which is a famous live album that they recorded was recorded in was recorded in on several concerts on their tour of America in 1969, which features the new guitarist Mick Taylor. Um, a little while that but that's, that's a bootleg. Around the sort of the same time, they release a live album called "Get Your Yar Out," and all, most of the critical opinion is. The bootleg is, is a is a better record. It captures the Stones at, at, at their more kind of vigorous live, less produced. <laughs>
0: Sounding pretty hot, right? Yeah. I mean, it's quite, it's a bit dirty, but it sounds very vibey, doesn't it? Mm. And I mean, uh, uh, the story about that, which is quite interesting, because of course that was the second massive bootleg for Ken and Dub, who mm. had kicked off their career with a, a, a Dylan bootleg, we'll talk about in a bit. Uh, and Dub apparently recorded that uh, by just pointing a shotgun mic at the PA at the concert, Um mm to get away with it yeah uh, <laughs> no one saying well you've got this big mic for then yeah exactly <laughs> and then of course because I suppose people weren't really aware of bootlegs at that time it's quite early on yeah and and then apparently as well when they went to press it they were pressing it at a pressing plant who was doing it for them at the same time as they were pressing the next uh stone's official album and the people at the pressing plant didn't question why these two hippies Seem to have hold of these Rolling Stones tapes, uh, uh, amazing stuff. So, um, you know, they probably did a service in a way, didn't they? In some way, to, the, Certainly something to well, the fans. I mean, yeah, they, the record label would agree that. But they did a service, <laughs> I mean, didn't I they?
2: We, I think we, I think in a way, we, we should. That being pretentious about it, we need to put it in some sort of context. Mm-hmm. This is the, this is the late '60s, and there's an idea in a way that rock music and pop music is, um, a you know, a cultural phenomenon, and it, and it's still looked down upon. By quote-unquote mainstream society, still considered degenerate uh, and daring and a bit dangerous. Um, and bootlegs are, you know, the idea of the, there's both a political and a musical and cultural underground, which will be connected with taking drugs, which are illegal as well. Um, and the and the bootleg record fits in nicely with that countercultural mm. thing. You buy it from underneath the culture. You often buy it from behind the counter. It's not on on the front. You have to ask for it or find it in a particular shop. So it. It, the bootleg neatly seges into, or segues into, seges. What am I talking about? <laughs> then neatly segues into the bootleg neatly segues into this lifestyle of you know that you're outside the law, you're or slightly outside the law. But you know, by smoking dope in America in or in Britain in the late sixties, you are you are a criminal. You could mm. be arrested, and and rock music and you know and funk and soul and other kinds of music are still looked down on.
1: I think it's a very good point. I think you... Because when you discover, if I use another example, like the Smiths or something, it's your band. They become mm. big. You mm. go back, you try and find everything they've ever done. You find a bootleg, they become your band again because not many people have got that issue. Yeah. It? So I think it's the ownership and the, the family. And And I think... did stop me buying anything. Yeah. Still bought everything. Well, you yeah. know. So that's yeah. the argument. But, a, and
0: that, one of the arguments, of course, which was always used against bootlegs, well, against bootleggers anyway, is that they were competing with the official releases, the idea that, you know, you might buy the Smiths bootleg and you wouldn't buy the official Smiths album. Well, that was just ludicrous, wasn't doesn't it? doesn't make mean, any sense. Yeah. It was the fans who bought the bootlegs, wasn't it?
2: Well, and also the, there's an element of fan club exchanges. I mean, certainly Frank Sinatra, like little but small local fan, Frank Archer fan clubs would exchange fan club-only records, which would be you know, recordings of maybe radio broadcasts or radio acetates, which they would share among that group. And I think that... That sort of subculture of you know exchanging tapes and all the rest of it, which it has its I suppose is at its its pinnacle through a band like the Grateful Dead, who encouraged that sort of taping of their 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 concerts and actually have someone doing it. You know um, Betty, who uh, is you know manning the boards, you know recording stuff, and that becomes. Part of, you know, The Great Dead's legion of fans exchange tapes and, and and that is part of their identity of being a deadhead is attending the concerts, exchanging the tapes um, as well as buying the official releases.
0: Right, and they were sort of radical in that sense, weren't they? Because they were so sort of in, in such a community with their own fans that they yeah. were encouraging the bootlegging of their own concerts, whatever the record company said about yeah. it, you know. But generally speaking, there's been a theme of that is that Artists themselves have of often, not always, but been quite sympathetic to bootleggers. Yeah. Apparently, Mick Jagger and, and Keith Richards used to go into record stores in the states and and look for Stones bootlegs, and they would just pick them up and walk out with them because nobody's going to say, "Oh, you can't steal that," yeah. right? Because <laughs> <they say>, you <laughs> just stole <laughs> it off me. Yeah, uh, and you know, and, and people uh, uh, love love to do that. Not all artists, of course, uh, that was the case. In fact, let me just read you um, a little quote and see if you can tell me who you think uh, said this. And this is an artist who who definitely didn't want their uh, own stuff bootlegged. <clears throat> I've just obtained the address of a man who, against all my requests, bootlegged the kitchen concert in New York, and I'm considering exactly what to do. The traditional approach is that three very large burly men go around and inflict a considerable amount of muscular damage upon the body of the person who's bootlegged this. That's not my approach. I don't like having the idea of working through the traditional dinosaur structure of copyright law, understandably, Uh, but I sense that I may have to do it because in a situation where normal requests from one human being to another aren't met by a decent, honourable response, one's violated. This situation simply can't go on. Anybody got any ideas who said that? Right, well that was Robert Fripp, who's uh, notoriously against bootleg. Personally, I wouldn't buy an official King Crimson record, <laughs> yeah, never mind yeah. an unofficial one. But he's got the right to say that. I do. He's Well, it's probably the, the moment the he's
2: putting out. Like, the King Crimson be putting out these monster-like yeah, CD the issue like, after yeah, issue yeah, after.
1: But
0: but then I suppose he's a control freak and he's yeah. curating those very carefully. Definitely. And that's yeah. that's, that's mm. that, of course, is the the issue, isn't it? But listen, I want to just move on to a different kind of bootleg, just briefly. We might be come back to the to the live stuff in a minute. But we have this Beatles, uh, of course along with Dylan and the Stones, the most bootleg band in the world, and not just live concerts, because they didn't do that many apart from early on, of course, but studio outtakes. Let me just play this first and then Travis can tell us about it.
1: Black
0: man. <laughs> Don't dig no Pakistan, Pakistanis taking all the people's
1: jobs. Oh,
0: get back. Travis, that's no <laughs> Pakistanis by the Beatles. That's a worrying sort of record. Please explain it to us.
2: Well, they—it was part of the, the Get Back sessions, uh, and there was another track also called um, uh, "Back to the Commonwealth." Um, I think it's one of the ty- other names of it. But it's supposed to be, or so they have subsequently claimed, it was supposed to be a repost. Enoch Powell mm. It's supposed to be taking the mickey out of Enoch Powell's River, rivers of blood speech about sending people back but obviously you can see that um, many people might just take that and, and certainly right-wing people since have taken it just on face value that it, that it was intended to uh, in, uh, convey that sentiment but uh, I think it's fairly obvious the Beatles were not uh, racist yeah. and, and we're not uh, but, but quite you know they've they've never released it wasn't it was left off any of the kind of uh, anthology <laughs> compilations shall we say um, We'll, so, g- we'll mean, give it, them a, the benefit of the yeah, day yeah again, but and I mean... also it's, it's, it, it, it was during I mean it's in it's in anyway I mean whatever what becomes Let It Be the album that it's their attempt to do a band uh, Dylan you know Basement Tapes idea that they they're going to go back to basics and just sort of jam as a band and and write material so of course this is this is really a muck around jam but where, I
0: mean who. Did the person who recorded that made a, possibly made a copy of it and then slip it out? I mean, did they do the band a service? Did they do the public a service? Is it a culturally important piece of audio?
2: I, I mean, in the context of another, the late sixties, it's an it's an interesting piece of of <laughs> a fragment of history. A slightly uncomfortable listen, it has to be said. Mm. But I mean, clear in a way, the intentions behind it, I think. Um, or them, them recording it, or the sentiment that, that I think Paul McCartney was trying to express was one of disgust with Powell, but it was it's very hard for that
1: to be... But it seems a, a, like he hadn't written the lyrics, so it's a train of thought, Yeah, like, and it's just, mm, yeah. just stuff coming out of the air. Yeah. So, you know, I think we'd all, if we... Go in front of a microphone like now. We're going to say many things we don't actually mean. So yeah, I, I'd, I'd allow him that. i I'd yeah. give him that. I don't as, think there's I, any intention behind that. As
0: videos. a recording artist myself, yes. of course, I would absolutely cringe if some of the, my demos and musings were, were, were yes. not that they're going to be because there wasn't the appetite for them. But I mean, if, if should they be in some alternate universe, I, I would just cringe. I've I mean, been it must be awful, you for years,
2: Steve. <laughs> well, I mean, you you were hitting there really on the the artist's position on on lots of bootlegs. Uh, and most famously, you know, the sort of the Great White Wonder, uh, mm. which is, the, you know, the first sort of rock. Um, It's, it's the record that opens the floodgates of, of bootlegging.
0: Yeah, well, that's a perfect segue, actually. I'm just, let me just start off with some music and then we can talk about that amazing record, OK. Mm-hmm. Fire from the Great White Wonder, the first massive bootleg, as Travis was saying. Now the fascinating thing about that, Travis, is that in a strange way it was the first massive one, but also in some ways it was the bootleg which defined it all, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, 23 tracks, uh, two from Columbia, early Columbia yeah. demos, two from or at least two anyway, from even before that, before he was signed, So mm. demos. demos, uh, studio outtakes from the Highway 61 sessions, a session from the Folk Magazine Broadside, one from Dylan's appearance on the Johnny Cash Show. And then, of course, in a way, the, the heart of it is these seven tracks, which he's recorded at the Big Pink or somewhere up in New York Woodstock, State. Woodstock, yeah. Woodstock, after his motorbike accident, mm. and him and the band have hold up there. He's not. This is not an official thing. He's recorded demos, not for his own next album, but for his publishers. That's right. He's yeah. written songs. Yeah. Then, which like songs for other people mm. to cover, they put them on an acetate, like which is a you know very basic sort of vinyl because record. Yeah, fourteen
2: songs or fourteen songs, are 14 out, think, songs. for his publisher. and it's
0: circulated amongst the industry only. Mm. Right, that's the idea. Then yep. what
2: happens? Well, it, it, it sneaks out, um, and some of them start being played on FM radio stations in the in the United States, particularly on the West Coast, um, the sort of Wild West of, of bootlegging, um, and. Um, and people are keen to hear them. I mean essentially, i mean dylan has he's had his motorbike crash. He's sort of withdrawn um and when he reemerges, um he he ha- he's a, sort of a, more of a countrified singer. He's doing the john um john Wesley harding um album and then after that Nashville Skyline, which sounds quite different to the pre motorcycle crash uh, bob dylan. but in that in that time, some of these songs that are, he's placed with his publishers have been released, you know, uh, Peter, Paul and Mary, Julie Driscoll, obviously doing Wheels on Fire, The Birds, um, yeah, recording some of some of these songs which were demoed. Um, and there's a kind of a gap between you know, Dylan as was, Dylan of the, you know, of um, Blonde on Blonde and, you know, and Highway 61 Revisited and the new countrified version of Dylan. Um, and alongside the rumours that he's been replaced by a, you know, by a by a fake, you know, and he's died or whatever other nonsense stuff, um, there's a hunger for for the you know for for something which is perhaps a little bit more like the older Dylan. And because they've heard these songs, they realise there must be some. And now these recordings are starting to be played on FM radio. Essentially, Rolling Stone runs a piece. Um, called you know the basement tapes the you know the the lost Dylan album about these recordings which have taken place and it and that sort of feeds a, a deep hunger within the fan base for a, an album of these recordings and so um you know two gentlemen in in California step into the breach and put together this Great White Wonder compilation album, which is not really all the Basement tapes at all. It's like a, a hodgepodge of all sorts of. of they sort tapes. of
0: curated it, didn't they? Yeah. I mean, Ken and Dub, and Ken's right. dad was, you know, ran ran a record store, yeah. so he sort of knew the business. They were
2: in distribution, I think, as well. They had a hand and, in the kind yeah, of yeah. And Dub
0: Dub was a huge Dylan fan himself, yeah. and and where they got the other stuff from, who knows? But they did sort of curated, didn't they? Yep. The stories is that they pressed up three hundred copies. Mm you know, as young fans sort of thing, gave them to somebody to see if he he could sell them. And he came back sort of half an hour later saying the first record store, official record store he walked into in uh, maybe Santa Monica or something, had bought the whole lot. And then, of course, they just keep pressing it and pressing it. And the story of that record, which is amazing, is then, of course, when people catch on that it's selling, other people start, Bootlegging their bootleg, and of course, when you're in the bootleg world, there aren't any <laughs> ethics. Yeah, exactly. So other people start bootlegging it, and in fact, this record gets bootlegged repeatedly,
2: and really, and new versions of new Arr- vo- you know troubled Troubadour. I mean, there are at the mm. flower, there are kind of all sorts of different versions of some which are closer to the basement mm. tapes, i.e., that contain more of those acetate demos mm. and less of the recorded in his girlfriend's bedroom stuff. Um, but it, yeah, it, I mean, it's this, it's a sense in a way that, um because Dylan isn't giving them the music they want the, 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 again the fans are kind of stepping into the breach you know and and, and there's all, throughout Dylan's career obviously there's this whole thing of you know he moves from being a folk singer to an electric thing which annoys his fans and there's people who think that's the that, that's the proper Dylan and then there's the, the electric Dylan and there's the proper Dylan but now he's gone country I wish he could just play the electric stuff again so it, so <laughs> The fans te- think of themselves as kind of moral moral agents that they're doing this. Also, this you know it's it's that idea that to be a, a Dylan fan is to be an, a, a, a largely an obsessive during this era, and so they want everything. Um, and because Dylan's production has slowed, shall we say, and is producing material which is right uh, a little odder. This you know, there's a, there's a pent up hunger for this kind of material, but it, in a way, it opens the floodgates for bootlegs. Uh, in the late 60s. in 1969, I think actually, it's Great White Wonder comes out. Suddenly, it emerges that there is a huge market for recordings by by kind of underground art rock artists uh, you know, session work, uh, mm. and live concerts. And so it, it, it creates a, a boom in, in, in the bootleg within, in the rock and roll and the rock. Yeah. it starts
0: with Dylan stones, obviously yeah. Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, exactly. all, you know, the Eagles, the, all, all those yeah. massive bands get hugely bootlegged, And of course the record companies are all over it. And there's lots of things published about, you know, that Dylan's suing bootleggers. I don't think Dylan was suing anybody. It was the record label actually. The him. even when it came to the UK it cross, it crossed over the Atlantic and, uh, I've got a case here where it says that um, a 20-year-old bootlegger turned over his tapes after the Dylan LP began circulating in England. And uh, copyright sleuths have busted England's first bootleg record producer for making a one-disc version of Dylan's Great White Wonder album. David Steele, the 20-year-old founder and president of FD Productions, the bootleg company, says <laughs> officials, yeah. met with officers of the MCPS, turned over the original GWW tape, and his master tape, paid most of the 360-degree royalties demanded and promised not to do it again.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I mean, in America, I mean, there's one bootleg guy called Rubber Dubber mm. uh, who sent copies of his bootleg albums to the Rolling Stone to be reviewed uh, <laughs> and, to, and, again, took a kind of provocative stance of saying that he was putting um, the music, you know, he was connecting to the fans directly and uh, you know, cutting out the middleman of, uh, of the record company um and, and and use that as a kind of moral argument and another moral argument which some bootleggers made as well was that um often because they were only you know a four-person team it meant that greater equity was shared out within the company because <laughs> rather than in a big multinational where only certain people got a certain percentage to the spoils of course
0: they the didn't stop all this that didn't stop uh, uh the bootleg tapes as they were being you know issued as the basement tapes uh but in 75 yeah. by dylan's record yeah. company and in fact that basement tapes then went on to be thirteen albums worth of outtakes. Well, this is stuff it because and... the
2: basement tapes isn't really the basement tapes mm. either. Half of its uh, some of its band demos that they'd mm. done somewhere else. So, so but
0: it generated a market. So you could yeah. say, in a way, that the bootleg itself actually did uh, Dylan quite a lot of good. He's famously uh, said to have cl- said when the basement tapes official. Record was released that he was surprised anybody bought it because he thought they already had it. Yeah. Because the Great White Wonder had been doing the runs. Let's just jump over here back to um, the UK. Well, actually, of course, this is recorded in NASA, but it is David Bowie again. And um, there's an argument as well which the record companies put forward, which would be interesting to hear you to Paul referred to it earlier. The issue of sound quality. Now, let's just let's just start off with this one. Okay. <sighs> you got it keep that in your head is that alright and then what about this one Which version of Suffragette City is better? Paul, first or second?
1: You, I'm going to say the first because that's the. I'm assuming that isn't the that's official the, issue. That's the Bootleg that boot version, boot Travis.
0: Yeah.
1: <sighs> I,
2: <laughs> with the world, to be honest, the second sounds, <laughs> sounds clearer, to be honest. It's punchier. It but, sounds
0: clearer, that's the point, yeah. isn't it? And of course, it does sound clearer and cleaner, but I I, I reflect on this sometimes when I'm sitting on the 77 bus on Wandsworth Road. And there's sort of uh, the kids on there with their phones out and they're often listened to music, not with headphones, but just coming mm. out of the, yeah. uh, of the phone. Um, and it sounds terrible, but it doesn't matter. And the thing about the Soviet bootlegs, just to sort of go back to them, is that a lot of the uh, records that we've heard and got, which were cut by these Soviet bootleggers, you know, uh, jazz rock and roll records. The sound quality is absolutely appalling. Because of the technique, maybe third, fourth generation copy, but also recording on an X-ray. It's not easy, as you know, Bolt knows all too well. And <laughs> yeah. you know, they didn't last very long and stuff. And yet, we, t- you know, we talked to old guys in, in Moscow and played them, those records back, and you know, they, they light up. Why? Because it was the music that they wanted to listen to, the music that they loved. The sound quality didn't really matter mm. that much, actually.
2: Well, I mean, I guess if I was a young Bowie fan in the nineteen seventies. Uh, which I, I suppose I was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very young. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, um, then and that and the only way of hearing that live concert. Perhaps mm. t- another thing, the key thing is some people as well. Is, you know, if they attended that concert, having a recording. of that, I mean, that's a huge thing. Certainly, in, when I was a teenager in in the eighties, cassette, uh, you know, bootleg cassettes of gigs were a huge current if you'd been to the mm-hmm. particular gig you could get, you know, um, I, mean, I had to find a bootleg copy of it if you hadn't bootlegged it yourself, I suppose. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, you would have wanted it at any price, wouldn't you, really? Whether it sounded as, uh, you know, uh, as like the first version, the, the bootleg one, or cleaned up official one. You would probably, as a fan, want the official one eventually to come out so you could hear it mm-hmm. in, in a better quality. Mm-hmm. But as a keen fan, you would probably put up with the bootleg and the sound quality because it, it would mean something to you. It would have that that, you know, that totemic element it's
1: got more of a nostalgia to yeah. it hasn't it it's not yeah. sterilized it's not that kind of half and half Whereas yeah. the original one you can feel like you're kind of there yeah. if you were there it feels like you're there again I mean I,
2: I mean I love one of the things I like about that uh, some of the bootlegs is often the ephemeral noise mm. so people talking in the crowd I mean obviously the famous cases the, the, you know official releases like the undergrounds live at max's um, where you can hear Jim Carroll asking for some qualudes uh, quite audibly on, on the tape and, and there's a Cure one which became an official release as well of an early concert they do at the Rocket in Crawley um, where he's doing 1015 on, on a Saturday night and he does his guitar solo and you hear this girl and he makes a kind of chunky noise on his guitar and you can hear a girl say he's broken his guitar <laughs> and, and like, you know it's just I don't know, those kind of details I think that, that those are the keen things with
1: bootlegs. I think I can think. say the same the bootleg I've got of uh, David Silvian uh, in Spain he introduces but he never you never really hear him speak you know and there's this one beautiful moment where um he introduces the drummer and my drummer is Steve Jansen my brother and it's, it's a very twee thing, but as a yeah. fan, it's like, whoa. And it yeah. fills you with emotion. It's like, that's my brother playing the drums. And you, you rarely see a glimpse yeah. of I think any kind it. of yeah. human side. So to, as a you fan,
0: know. see, that's interesting. So that's a love thing, isn't it? Is that, you know, you know this artist really well. You know his history. So you get this little glimpse into his personal life, actually, mm-hmm. in a way there. And, and, and that was always part of it with the bootleg, wasn't it? Is that you are proud to be a super fan and spend the extra money, because bootlegs are often quite expensive, Mm. uh, on this product, even if the sound quality was poor, you were sort of on an insider club. And also, you were seeing behind the curtain, because I suppose that's the other thing which is easy to forget in these days of YouTube, where every moment of an artist's life is being documented. This was a time when somebody like Dylan or Bowie... They were like almost like mythical creatures. Their image was completely controlled by the record label. Their output was completely controlled by the record label, both in terms of photograph f- photographs, mm. film, and of course music. Mm-hmm. So if you got the bootleg, it was like a sort of entree to their world behind back, the curtain. It's a back wasn't it? channel, isn't it? A in back way. channel. channel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're
2: you're you're bypassing uh, all of those kind of traditional media yeah. outlets. I think that, that, that's the rebel thing again, the mm-hmm. idea of, you know, you've signed up to, for the rock and roll underground, in a sense, and part right. of that will be, you know, a mode of dressing, a mode of behaviour, and maybe a mode of listening where you're, you know, where bootleg records are part of that. And I'm it becomes play yours a, again, doesn't it? Yeah. That's what
0: it I'm going to play a little bit of another one of Travis's here because this is a rehearsal at one of television, mm. and it's them in rehearsal, so I don't know how it came out, but, I mean, have a listen to this. Some more of that because it's all great, isn't it? Travis, Mm. that track, and and it's well, that's them rehearsing, but it's it's beautiful, right?
2: Well, I mean, it's um, I mean, it's I think that's actually them recording them, they were doing some demos for Eno and Richard Williams of Island Records. I think that's that's where that material comes from. But it was it was bootlegged and put out, um, as an album called Double Exposure, um, by by which point the television had already released, um, Marky Moon, I think, um. And for, bootlegs are interesting for punk, I think particularly, because there's an idea that punk itself is a back to basics movement and it's a lot about the live performances and, and also some of the groups didn't last that long or members left. So that's television, I think with Richard Hell still in, still as a member of the band. Um, similarly, uh, Buzzcocks, when Howard Devoto leaves the band, there's a bootleg called Time's Up, which collects together um, all the recordings that we, were with the full original band. Um, but I think Punk as well, that idea that it's an under- another underground thing, it's a back to basics movement, it's DIY. That sort of encourages um, bootlegging, and and a lot of it's also about it being live, it being you know very spontaneous, which goes back to the often lots of jazz bootlegs was the whole point that because jazz was improvised, it was and it may only be like a scratch group. It's just come together for that particular club session or something, then you get, if you bootleg that or have a recording that, then you've got a unique sort of one-off document. The Sex Pistols, famously, there's a couple of um, of sort of Sex Pistols bootlegs. One of their gig at the Lesser Free Trade Hall uh, in Manchester has been released, which sounds like it's been recorded inside someone's school bag. Um, and then there was a, a significant Sex Pistols bootleg. Spunk. Called Spunk, yes, which, um, again is sessions uh, that were recorded for Dave Goodman for what would become never mind uh, the bollocks um and there are rumours about who possibly might have stuck this particular record, a figure relatively close to the band is sus- suspected. With of the first name of it. Malcolm? The first name of Malcolm, a surname of McLaren. Um who in partly, you know, just out of spite and to kind of, you know, to 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 be, you know, to be the rebel to play the ultimate kind of media card by releasing a record, which gets, you know, um sounds, you know, review it, claim it's you know, it's a lot better than than Nevermind Let's the Bollocks. It's like the true sound of the Sex Pistols.
0: Sounds so good. You know, a really good record anyway, but also rumours of of collaboration between the artist and the sort of bootleg sort of
2: thing. And, uh, well, the management, shall the we management. say. <laughs> the bootleg. I, I mean, again, it's... it's. I mean, you think about punk with the fanzine scene, those mm. idea of, you know, um, lots of Xeroxed material, you know, copied material, and, and so it fits very well into that aesthetic as well, mm. that you've got this, you know, this slightly um, hand-fashioned... Uh, a version of the record floating about. I mean, the, the 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 center of the record has a has a kind of gun. It's, like mm. it's on blank records, is what it, what it mm. says. So you know, the, the, the sort of pistol, uh, shooting blanks.
0: So there's always been this thing, isn't it, with the record labels or the BPI versus the bootleggers. Mm. And I just wanted to uh, we we're talking about it earlier. There's this case uh, from the BPI, you know, here in the UK, where a certain listen to this for a list of names: David Robert Jones, also known as David Bowie. Robert Zimmerman, also known as Bob Dylan. Dave Gilmore, Roger Waters, whose first name is George. He keeps that quiet. Uh <laughs> Nick Mason, middle name is Bentley. That you
2: choose Roger <laughs> over George, isn't it <laughs> interesting, I suppose. Like, no, I'd rather be known as Roger. Roger. <laughs> Richard
0: Wright, Mick Fleetwood, Stephanie Nix, John McVie, Christy McPhee, Lindsay Buckingham. Elton Hercules John, uh, <laughs> yeah. Philip Wellens, I think that's slash Phil Collins, Stephen Hackett, Mike Rutherford, Anthony Banksy from some bank called Genesis, James Page, John Baldwin, Robert Plant, John Bonham from Led Zeppelin, Ian Anderson, is that Jethro Tull? is yeah. it? Yeah. Plus, the RCA Corporation, RCA Limited, CBS Limited, EMI, WEA, Rocket Records Company, Charisma, Chrysalis, versus Mick Jones from Camden, Bootlegger, yeah. <laughs> uh who'd uh, been infringing all the above rights by selling um bootlegs mm. and uh presumably they swooped on him yeah. or in in camden or at portobello or something confiscated his stuff
2: and then not quite sure what he'd been. Doing. Maybe he was the manufacturer, and uh, and uh, they sued him. But I mean, the interesting cases of some artists in their careers at stages being very in favour of bootlegging. Bruce Springsteen uh, comes to mind. He he recorded quite a lot of concerts for FM radio in the states, and initially didn't seem to be too bothered about that happening because he thought it would helped spread his music around America, um, but then a little bit later on, he, he got a little bit sniffier with um, one particular bootlegger, and he and his record company, um, you know, sued a woman called I think called, her name was Vinyl Vicky, I think was was her, her bootlegging name, um, and you know, and she lost quite a lot of money, and mm-hmm. and her, all of her bootlegs had to be you know it had to be destroyed um so sometimes artists can be complicit in this if they think it is to their their advantage and i I think as you alluded to earlier there's an element where and and paul's great point about david Sylvian in a way is that they can add to our appreciation of them and also in some some respects enhance the mystery um of what it is they do well because a lot of bootlegs are of live performances or session work. So again, it's that thing of catching that little bit of a spontaneous performance or a performance that's not going to be repeated, wouldn't be on the official official list. So it's just being given this, this extra detail. But
0: the rarity aspect's gone, isn't it? So it's like you, if you if you bought a bootleg in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you, you know, you were a member of a small club mm. of, of super fans and... Uh, no, it is on YouTube. You know, you can watch it all, which is great. i mean, I, I, I like that too. But it's, it's the need for that's gone. And you know, I know Travis. You also made a, a radio series recently about about the antiques. I did. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, aren't, aren't bootlegs? They're antiques now. They're valuable things. Some of them things. Are, yeah. I mean, this is
2: the thing. Some of those, some of those bootlegs are mm. worth money because they mm. were very rare at the, they were rare at the time. They're mm. even rarer now.
0: Uh, and the culture are important because they had an amazing effect, as you said, on the live album on the. The whole outtake industry, the, you know, the, yeah. they let us know, as Paul says, about the the inner life, or the sort of secret life of fans, peeping behind the curtain and stuff. And but maybe there isn't really any need for them in that sense anymore. But apart from is this maybe the collectors. Thing.
2: Well, I mean, maybe maybe in a way, nothing has changed in in one respect is that the superfan is still the superfan, the superfan that will buy everything will still be there buying those. In a sense, we have to remember in a way that the bootleg industry, while it was huge in the in the seventies and the eighties, was still. It's a small part of the record-buying public who was that fanatical enough to seek out bootlegs and collect them. Most people were quite happy with just the official releases.
0: Well, I mean, I wanted to talk a little bit about, or Paul could talk about, a a super fan of his acquaintance um, who used to go to concerts with. He used to record uh, religiously record everything, and in fact, he, he wouldn't let Paul even talk during the concert in case he spoiled the recording, right, Paul?
1: I occasionally had trouble breathing next to him. <laughs> <So, laughs> was allowed to drink beer? We were Elliot Smith fans. Uh, I had a friend who, for some reason, I never really knew why, had to record everything we went to. So the that personal DAT recorder had just come out. He religiously recorded. We'd have to stand in the middle of the room. It'd have to be uh, virtually to the centimetre between the two PA speakers, whether it was at Dingwalls, whether it was Hammersmith. you know, It doesn't matter on the quality of the PA, we would be uh 90 degree angle it was perfect whether there was a a big angry man next to us we'd push him out of the way and we'd have to record and matt would glare at people that were talking um anyway he managed to record uh i've got a set of 10 cds which i think are quite a historical document now obviously because elliot smith has passed um some are great recordings to be honest there were things that happened he's a brilliant guitarist he missed some notes he's sometimes out of tune a little bit um but that's the beauty of live music and i love hearing that
0: He was of course impossibly in infringing the Beatles rights there unless they actually paid them PRS money we possibly infringed somebody's rights during the making of this program right because Perhaps. who knows it's all very complicated isn't it uh that's it for today thank you very much Travis pleasure Paul thank you very much Pleasure again. So that was it, and thank you to you, ladies and gentlemen, and anybody in between, or anybody who doesn't wish to be categorized by those descriptions. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that foray into the countercultural world of the bootleg final record. And as I mentioned at the beginning, um, next episode we will be featuring another way that music has been illicitly used sampling with two aficionados, uh, not to say practitioners of the art, DJ Food and John Moore of Cold Cut and Ninja Tune Records. Very much looking forward to that one. You can check out all our programmes at Culture.com. If you listen via Apple, you can leave us a review if you choose. We'd like that. And we will see you, hear you next time. I'm Stephen Coates.